You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, if you're not already there, please grab your Bibles, your devices, whatever, and turn to Revelation chapter 5. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. Three months from today, on, uh, on August 28th, 2023, will mark 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr. uttered four words on the step, steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He uttered them repeatedly in his speech, and they have become some of the most iconic words um, in American history. He said, I have a dream. It was a critical moment in the American civil rights movement. And I think it's safe to say that none of us here were there that day. Many of us weren't alive, and those who maybe were probably were not old enough to be crossing the border for any kind of political demonstration. But I am sure that uh, the Reverend's words from that speech are at least somewhat familiar to us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. You know, I learned something interesting about this speech uh, this week, something I I didn't know. Uh, Dr. King actually improvised the I have a dream refrain in his speech. The notes that he handed to his aides that morning to type up did not include that part of the speech. He had used similarly themed language for that morning, didn't include that part. And it's amazing to think about because those words, like I said, are some of the most iconic in American history. He was also only supposed to speak for about four minutes. He went on for about 16 don't worry, I'm going to stick to my notes this morning. I don't think anything that I improvise would be near, nearly as impactful as what he said that day. I have a dream, Martin Luther King said. The Apostle Paul had a dream too. We just read about it in Revelation 5. It was a heavenly vision, actually. And in one, in one or the other way, it's kind of related to the dream that the Reverend had on that day. But in other, in other ways, it's much broader. It's much grander. And that's not to diminish... Um, Dr. King's remarks on that August day. As a Baptist minister himself, I suspect he would have agreed that the civil rights movement and healing how black and white men interact with each other in America was only one piece of a much larger puzzle. John's vision in Revelation that we've just heard read is one of every tribe, every language, every people, every nation redeemed by Jesus, united with one another, singing praises to the one who made them, the one who created them equal in dignity and value. It's a tapestry of people elevating the creative genius that built the human race in all of its diversity to reflect God's image in so many unique ways and giving honor to the God who counted each one of them as worth saving. And this has been God's dream from the very beginning, to bring together a family of followers, a family of people from every nation who recognize the goodness of God's character, the strength of his might. It's to bring together a family of people who will live under his rule and reign alongside him because they know that that is the best thing for the human race. It's the best thing for the earth and everything in it. The best thing for human flourishing is that God would be in charge and that people would follow his ways. 
And this is the vision that we're trying to achieve as we live out our life as a church, as we live missionally in our own neighborhoods, seeking to bring others into the family of God. It's also the vision that we're shooting for when we engage with cross-cultural missions, when we take the good news about Jesus across boundaries and to the nations. And like Darcy mentioned this morning, before we head back into Psalms for the summer, we've opted to spend a few weeks talking about this theme of missions and specifically God's heart for the nations. Last week, Darcy introduced us to this idea. He talked about how at the core of uh, cross-cultural missions is this idea of sending, this idea that God brings good news, good news of blessing through his people that are sent. And this idea of sending often has an idea of crossing boundaries, going to places uh, where there are people who are not like us. And this theme is present throughout Scripture. Abram was sent from his own country, and he was promised that he would be a blessing to the nations. Jonah was called to Nineveh to preach good news to the Assyrians, even though he didn't really want to. God himself is a missionary God. He crossed a cosmic border, the early church, to rescue the human race, just like we've heard about in communion. And the early church at Antioch designated apostles to go out from their body and spread the good news among the Gentiles. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the vision that drives this missionary activity. We see the goal that we look forward to. We see one global family united under King Jesus singing praises to his name. We know that this goal is yet to be reached, and yet we work towards it in faith. We know that there are people around the world who are yet to be brought into the family of God. There are tribes and nations, missions to hear the name of Jesus. We have a task that is unfinished, and so missions still has a place in the life of the global church, and we as the local church have a role to play in it. And this morning, we're going to talk about this vision, and I want to talk about two things that I see in Revelation 5 that I want to highlight, that I believe summarize the basic motivation for really any church outreach activity, whether it's living missionally in our own neighborhoods here in town, or it's being sent across boundaries in the context of cross-cultural missions. It's two things that drive this sending that Darcy talked about, two things that drive missions. In John's vision, we see a God who is worthy and a people that are worth it. God is worthy and people are worth it. If we don't believe these things in the depths of our heart, then missions makes no sense. Missional outreach, evangelism, discipleship, missional families, even in our own communities, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, if we do believe these things, the need for all of those things are clear. The need for evangelism and missions and discipleship is obvious. And so God is worthy and people are worth it. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, God is worthy. Now, this might feel like an obvious thing to say from the stage on a Sunday morning. It might feel basic, but I think, again, it's a critical part of this vision that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 5. So let's look at Revelation 5, and we'll start in verse 11. We read, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels. I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Ultimately, we invite people into the family of God because we agree with this refrain 
that we hear the angels repeating in Revelation. We believe he is excellent, he is good, he is incredible, he is amazing, he is awe-inspiring, loving, kind, faithful. When Sharice and I moved into our place uh, on Oreo Parkway when we got married, uh, a friend of ours gave us a stereo as a wedding gift. We set it up in our living room, and shortly afterwards, I made a playlist on Spotify of a few songs that I was really enjoying at the time. They were the kind of songs that I, would, I thought would sound particularly good on this brand new stereo that we had. And, I would, and they were the kinds of songs that I would have loved to have you come over and to sit in a chair in our living room, and I would cue up one of these songs, I'd turn the volume way up, I, I'd send a preemptive text to the neighbors in the other side of our semi saying, sorry for the noise, and then I would hit play. And I'd probably sit there and I'd say, oh man, you gotta hear this part, listen to this harmony, or listen to that picking on the banjo, or listen to those horns that you can hear there, oh, those horns. When you experience something amazing in life, you are compelled to share it. We often want others to experience it as well. When we see a good movie or a good show, we tell people about it. We tell them they should check it out too. When you take a trip and you see beauty in, in a city, in architecture, in nature, in mountains, in an ocean coast. You take pictures and you want to show people when you get home because you want them to have a taste of what you've experienced. When you find a new song that catches your ear, you want to play it for someone in your living room so they can hear what you hear. And ultimately, that's how a bunch of those songs ended up on my playlist, right? Because somebody counted them as worthy of sharing with me. When we think of these things, movies, music, mountains, as, as worth sharing, we elevate them, we magnify them, we glorify them in a sense. I stop short of saying that we worship them, but I think that there's a parallel between that and the vision that we see in Revelation, where every living creature is ascribing glory and honor and praise to Jesus. Because in a similar way, but yet in a much more significant way than how we might say, man, you gotta hear this woman sing, or you gotta see this movie, it's as though the multitude are crying out to anyone who will listen, you gotta come check this out. You gotta come see this king. You have to experience Jesus. He is so good. And that's what we do in missions. We're saying to people from every place, from every people, come see the king. Come experience him alongside me. You will not be disappointed. John Piper wrote it uh, this way in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. We invite people into the family of God for his glory because he deserves it and our good because we think that he's the best thing for us and everyone on the earth. So this morning, what is it, what is it about God's character that you find to be worthy of worship? Because it's hard to invite someone into a vision into a family that following Jesus when you're not sure why you follow him in the first place. So I think it's worth cons us considering. What do you find about God that is worthy of worship? What do you find compelling about the good news of Jesus that makes you want to share it? The answers are not going to be the same for everyone. You know, people might fall in love with a particular movie or particular song for different reasons, for different parts that they enjoy in it. There's something that compels you differently about it. And in the same way, at different times, there might be different things about the Lord's character, the fact that we inspire you. Maybe it's his creative power, his sovereign power, the fact that we read in Genesis that with just his words, he spoke all of nature into being. 
Maybe you're particularly compelled by the glory of God in nature. You agree with Psalm 19.1, which says this, if I can find it. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Maybe it's his righteousness and wisdom. You just know that he knows best. You're compelled by his vision for human life, by what he has set out as the best way for us to live and interact with one another. You say amen to some verses further on in, in, in uh, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Maybe for you it's his grace and forgiveness. You are all too aware of your own faults and your own sin, but you're thankful that he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, it says in Psalm 103. Or maybe it's his relentless compassion. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds, it says in Psalm 147. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing, it says in Deuteronomy. Whatever it is, a big part of this vision that we see in Revelation, the big part of the vision that we're drawing people to, is that we believe that our God is worthy of worship. He is worth following. He is worth calling our Father. And it's worth having other people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation doing the same. Personally, these days, what has struck me as particularly glorious about God's character is his denial of power, prestige, and position. When so many in our world push for and pursue these things, the one who had the rights to all of them gave them up. Philippians 2 has become very dear to me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." God himself was willing to lay aside his position. He didn't grapple for honor. He didn't struggle for power. He had it all, and he left it behind. And I love it. I love how much that posture of Christ just kind of blows your mind. It's this, this thing of giving up power. It's this thing that grinds against so much of our culture. It offers a different way of living. I think it's hard to overestimate the significance of this of him humbling himself. It's hard to overestimate the degree. There's a way in which I actually think our Muslim friends get this a little bit more than we do. They think that Philippians 2, that this is just too audacious of a claim to be true. On the way home from serving in Turkey uh, in April, Sharice and I had the chance to visit Istanbul for a couple days. While we were there, we visited the Hagia Sophia. It's a building that has changed hands between religions over the centuries. It's been a church and a mosque at various points in history. Right now, it's a functioning mosque, um, but it's open between prayer times for visitors. It's a beautiful building, so we went in to have a look and to see it. Um, as you go in, you have to take your shoes off, which tells you a little bit about how Muslims view God in the first place. Um, but while we were in there, it's this awe-inspiring building, as you can imagine. Um, and we found off to the one side, we found a little stand that had 
um, a bunch of pamphlets in it, a bunch of uh, literature that kind of talked about the Islamic faith, little apologetics tracks and things like that. And uh, I picked up one that um, specifically was on the topic of Jesus. And so I opened it up, just curious what to see was in there, to see what was in there. And um, I read in there a, a critique of Christianity that I had heard from the Muslim perspective um, before. You see, in the Islamic view, God would never do, he would never do what Philippians 2 says that he did. He would never become human. It's beneath him. In the Islamic view, God is too glorious to endure the absolute disrespect that taking on human flesh would entail. It's just too much. And when I read that in that mosque, I wanted to shout to everyone who would listen, yes, yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly what he did. And it's just as crazy as it sounds. But that's the depth of his love and compassion and sacrifice. He did it because he believes that we're worth it, that you're worth it. We're all worth it to him, every one of us, Muslim, Jew, Christian, male, female, white, black, Asian, Arab. For me, that, that is what makes God worth following. That is incredible. And that also has a lot to say about how I should view other people that are different than me. If God was willing to give up that much for me, I have no other option but to see others with the same value. And that's the second part of John's vision that I want us to focus on, that people are worth it. In Revelation 5, in verse 9 uh, of our passage this morning, look at the lyrics of the song that they sing. Why is it that Jesus, the Lamb, is worthy to open the scroll and to open the seals? Let's read it together. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Some translations will use the word purchased or redeemed instead of the word ransomed. Regardless, it's the same, same idea. That word and the surrounding phrase have this idea that Jesus has engaged in a transaction for our freedom. There's plenty of language in the New Testament that uses this analogy, this ransomed analogy, to describe Christ's atoning work on the cross, that he bought us back with his sacrifice. You don't buy something unless you believe it has value, unless you believe it has worth. And he did this for people from every tribe under heaven. He ascribes value to all cultures, all people, all languages. He counted each one of them as worth saving. The gospel, the point is this, the gospel is not tribal or ethnocentric. The gospel is not for one nation. It is for every nation. It is not for one time in history. It is for all times. It is not for one geography. It is for every corner of the earth. And this vision and revelation of all nations gathered under one king, the heart of God for all peoples, it's about more than just you know, not being exclusive because we don't want to leave anybody out. No, it's an active desire to bring the diversity of the entire human race into one family under Jesus the King, because we're better for it, which is Latin. In Christian theology, there's a concept called uh, the Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. It comes from uh, this verse in Genesis uh, 1. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The entirety of the human race is created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. We are all equal in dignity, worth, and value. And part of what it means to be in the image of God is that we reflect his likeness, right? Kind of like a mirror reflects our image back to us. In a way, the human race reflects the image of God and gives us a picture of what he is like. Of course, we know from Genesis 3 that things are a little broken. You know, it's as though something has taken a hammer to the mirror and it's kind of broken, shattered into pieces. But just like with a broken mirror, you can, if you put all the pieces kind of back together, you can start to get a picture you know, a better reflection. It's not perfect, but as you put the pieces back into place, you start to see the reflection a little more clearer, and with each added piece, it brings more fullness. So it is with the cultures of the world and the nations of the world. This concept of Imago Dei and giving us a picture of God in its fullness is often something we bring up and we elevate when we elevate and acknowledge the image of God, and we need them both to see the whole picture. But it also applies to nations, cultures, and peoples of the world. We get a better picture of the glory and goodness of God, that he is sovereign. We need the reminder from our Arab brothers and sisters that God is in control, that he is sovereign, and we have to surrender to his will. We have to trust in him. We will go and do this. We will go and do that. But inshallah, which means God willing, if the Lord wills. Sometimes we need the reminder from our African brothers and sisters that honoring our elders and honoring particularly our father and mother is really important. We should show respect to them for investing in us, and sometimes that can mean a very tangible gift at a significant life event like a wedding. Sometimes we need the reminder from collectivist cultures of the world that our Western individualism is a double-edged sword, and at times... We need to follow in the way of Jesus and lay down our individual rights for the needs of the many. Sometimes we need a reminder that it's okay to slow down, have a cup of tea, and put relationships ahead of productivity. No culture, no people, no nation is perfect. We are all broken in our own ways, but we all retain the image of God in our own ways too. Without any one of us, the family is incomplete. And this is true of our earthly families too isn't it? Like, we all have our quirks, but we all have something that we bring to the table. It's what makes our family our family. I mean, think about your family and each person in it. Again, I know families aren't perfect, but I do think that if we took a moment, you'd probably be able to see in each person something that they contribute to the whole. Insightful one. Maybe there's a loyal one. There's a compassionate one. There's an insightful one, a steady one, a generous one, a lighthearted one. And without any one of them, your family just wouldn't, wouldn't seem quite right. It just wouldn't be whole. And so it is with the family of God. The image of God is in all peoples, all cultures, all tribes and all languages. And we are missing something if anyone is left out. Our Heavenly Father wants his children from all over the world to come to him. And you know, this vision of a global family that we see in Scripture, one that includes all peoples, it's also a great equalizer. It obliterates any room for racial, cultural, or nationalistic superiority. We are no longer primarily defined by the color of our skin or the flag on our passport. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom.
This doesn't mean that we lose all sense of cultural identity. No, that's going to be counterproductive to what we just talked about. We want the diversity and the mosaic of cultural identity to bring more color and picture to the family of God and to what he is like. But what it does mean is that our primary identity is one as children of God and that we share that primary identity with millions of people throughout history and across the globe. We approach them not as foreigners and strangers, but as brothers and sisters. We are bonded to people in an intimate way that we have never met and that we have very little else in common with. Believers across the world differ in culture, in language, in upbringing, geography, and often in socioeconomic status. And yet we share the most common bond of all, the strongest bond of all, that we are children of the King. In Galatians, Paul writes, but now faith has come. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is either, neither slave nor free. It is me how this male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's always amazed me how this bond of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is powerful enough to just, like, break down other barriers. You might not have anything else in common with a person, but that is deep enough for real connection. At the end of the year, last year, we were in Uganda for six weeks, and we worked with a team of mixed nationalities. We worked with Canadians, Americans, Kenyans, Ugandans, Congolese, Ghanaians. It was quite the experience. There was plenty of cultural nuances at play during that time, but we had some really rich conversation over tea at the end of many evenings. Lots of laughs, lots of learning, but so much unity because of the common bond of faith. And at one point, one of the Kenyans, Lillian, said what has become maybe one of Sharice and I's favorite memories from that trip. She said something to the effect of, um, at first I wasn't sure what to make of you North Americans, but after spending time together, I see we're all the same. You're just Africans with white skin. And at the time, we had a good chuckle about that, and I've grown to appreciate the sentiment. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a way in which it's not quite that simple, right? Like, I am not African. There's plenty of differences. I am very white, I am very Canadian, and I retain that identity. And yet, Lillian and I are one in Christ. And that, that fact makes all the other differences seem less consequential. We're brother and sister. We both follow the same king. We will both be there in front of the throne one day singing praises to the Lord. And that has been made possible by the missionary heart of God for all nations. It has been made possible by people who have been sent out, obeyed, and gone in pursuit of John's vision in Revelation 5, even if they didn't exactly know what they were going after. They believed that God is worthy. He is worthy of worship. He is worth sharing with others. They believed that people were worth it that the image of God in people made them valuable enough to go after and bring them into the family of God. Now, if there is any doubt left in our minds that we should be motivated towards missions near and far by this vision that we see in Revelation 5, by this vision to get the good news out, we would do well to remember this. From a first century viewpoint, we are the nations. You and I, we live at the ends of the earth. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said these final words to his disciples on earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are last on that list, my friends. The epicenter of our faith 
that we bet our lives on was not in the Western world. If the apostles had not taken the command of Jesus seriously, if they had not understood the implications of what they had seen and heard, things would look very different for us. Brothers and sisters, the original believers were not white Westerners shift. They were Jews, and it represented a huge paradigm shift to suggest that what Jesus had done had blown open the door of faith to the Gentiles without them having to become culturally Jewish. The earliest believers had to talk that one through. They had to wrestle with it. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. This should put humility in our hearts. But thanks be to God for men like Paul and Barnabas who responded to the calling of God to go. They refused to be hindered by religious, cultural, and ethnic boundaries, and they proclaimed the good news about Jesus to people who were different than them. By the grace of God, we are beneficiaries of their faithfulness. Hear the words of Paul to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and have, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus was for us. Jesus is for every nation. We have no choice but to be for them as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this vision and revelation of a family of God united under you, singing your praises. And Lord, in a context like ours, sometimes it's hard to know how. How do we engage with the nations of the world? How do we serve you in this way? Father, I pray that it would just start with a heart that loves you and loves your gospel and loves how you love people. And I pray that we would follow your prompting and your leading in that way. That in due time, we would be able to come to a place where we, we would put up our hands and we'd say, send me, I will go. Father, I pray that the fact that we know we were, we were recipients of missionary activity, God, I pray that would remind us how we need to view the world around us. We need to view other nations and peoples and cultures. Give us a soft spot for global missions, for outreach really of any kind, especially to people who are different than us. May we be inspired by the vision that we see in, in Revelation. May we be inspired by racial equality, by this idea of a global family. Lord, we love you. We love your people. We love your creative genius. And we sing your praises today. In Christ's name.